Verbally Effective with Ina Esco is an interview-style podcast that intersects art, culture, politics, and entertainment with a Memphis focus with producer Sana Marie. Each week, I'm joined by a featured guest with roots in Memphis. Verbally Effective delves into each guest's personal journey to uncover the incredible stories fueling their purpose the highs and lows of their pursuits, and how through their passion, they are moving the culture forward. Be sure to follow Verbally Effective and Ina Esco on Instagram. Also, download the Verbally Effective podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music. Don't forget to check out the website and submit to be a guest at verballyeffective.com. It is Carlissa Shaw, and I am hanging out with Ina Esco on the Verbally Effective Podcast. Hello, hello, hello. It's Corey Hollywood from the Kitchen Guru Catering Company, also from Paul and Rafer's Disco, and I'm hanging with my girl, Double E Ina Esco, on the Verbally Effective Podcast. Joanne Massey currently serves as the City of Memphis Director of Business Diversity and Compliance and Title VI Coordinator. Joanne is also the founder and principal consultant for Lewis Massey Associates, LLC. In these roles, she is responsible for counseling clients on business expansions, acquisitions, procurement opportunities, and navigating community and government ecosystems. She is a graduate of Benedictine University, where she graduated summa cum laude with a master's degree in business administration, concentration in finance. Joanne also has served as the lead business development consultant for Governor Bill Haslam's Tennessee Department of Economic and Community Development. During her time with the state of Tennessee, Joanne successfully managed to secure over $300 million in investments for West Tennessee counties through new business and expansions. She also was recognized as an emerging leader in state government by the Tennessee Chief of Staff for the Governor's Office. Joanne is a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated Beta Epsilon Omega Chapter and the Junior League of Memphis. Joanne enjoys music, yoga, and reading history. Her passion is assisting underprivileged girls by helping to improve their self-esteem through mentorship and exposure to cultural activities. Verbally Effective, your double E, Ina Esco here. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Verbally Effective podcast. You know you guys could check us out on all platforms, including SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, iHeart, and CastBox. Thank you guys for listening today. I have with me one of my beautiful sorors of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. She's with the BEO chapter. She's also the founder and principal consultant for Lewis Massey Associates, LLC. And I know you guys know her from the city of Memphis as the director of business diversity and compliance. I have with me my soror, Joanne Massey. How are you, Joanne? Hello, soror. How are you? 
Yes, I'm so happy you are with me today. You know, we've been knowing each other for quite some time back in our days at Lamorne on College when we were running the yard. Remember that? Yes, the growth. I'm glad you mentioned the growth because we're going to talk about how you have grown throughout the years, starting at the beginning, of course. What part of Memphis are you from, Joanne? Well, I am from the original New Chicago, North Memphis. If you don't know, just look on the other side of Bellevue and you will find one of the best neighborhoods in Memphis. New Chicago. Now, I heard of New Chicago. Now, y'all don't play in New Chicago. Well, I mean, you know, true to the cold, <laughs> I heard of Kool-Aid. <laughs> and I am little JoJo from North Memphis. But I will tell you, you have some of the people with the biggest hearts. Um, they always say the models come from uh, New Chicago. So, you know, we, we stay pretty. But we are a community that is um, rooted in family, rooted in having perseverance and tenacity, never giving up. Um, I was raised in New Chicago. My, my mother, who was a teenage mother, 17 years old when she had me, uh, she was one of eight children. My entire family lived in New Chicago. Um, wow. My Yes, my godparents. So I was actually, my mother being a teen mom, she um, sought some help. There was an elderly couple in the neighborhood, and, and they weren't elderly then. I guess they were like in their 30s or so, but they didn't have any kids. And uh, they would always babysit me. And the story that my mother told me is that basically, you know, they were babysitting me so much, Geraldine and Wendell Collins, that... Mm. Um, Jolene just said one day, you know, just just leave that baby here, Gloria, and just, you know, go ahead and go to work, just leave her here. And she left me there, and 11 years later, she came back and got me when she got married. So my godparents, wow. who not officially adopt me, are the people who raised me. And I will tell you something, when you raise and love a child who is not yours the way that Geraldine and Wendell raised me, um... You know what true love is. You know that you're loved when someone who is not your blood parent loves you in that way. And I know I'm jumping around here, but those folks are the best grandparents for my children that they could that any child could ever ask for. So they have uh, been my rock. I'm so happy that they're here, and I hope that they get to hear this. Uh, we will make sure they do. But uh, I love them. I love them, and I appreciate them, and I appreciate my birth mother, Gloria, for being selfless mm -hmm. and allowing them to love me. Um, I had the best childhood. I had the Barbie, you know, radio player and the little <laughs> pink polka dot dress. <laughs> I remember that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I had a really, really good childhood um, because of those folks, and so, you know, I mentioned about New Chicago. Um, like I said, being born and raised there, right there on Bounce Street, as a matter of fact, the home that I was brought home to is still standing. So I've had a chance to show my kids. But um, I started out at New Chicago Park and Elementary. 
and I can still, mm-hmm, I can still remember kindergarten uh, and first grade. <laughs> right. But you know, I don't know if you know about this. Uh, Danny Kale had written a book, and it was called The Desegregation of Memphis. I haven't Memphis read that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Memphis was still being desegregated in the 80s. Mm. And so, uh, as a matter of fact, the courts had come down and demand in, I think, the late 70s, it was that uh, Memphis City Schools at the time desegregate. Mm. And so, needless to say, when I was in first grade, my mother, Geraldine, my godmother, told us that they were closing down the school because it had rats. Little did we know they were closing down the school because it, it was all black and Brownsville Road, which was then in Bartlett or in the Bartlett area, was uh, all mostly white. Mm. And so they combined our schools and bust us from New Chicago Park to Brownsville Road in order to desegregate the school. Wow. And I... I'm telling you, Ina, I can remember walking into that school and seeing parents in the office checking their kids out. Mm. So mm. I went to my cousins and I, and I had a lot of cousins, and when I tell you how where we ended up, you'll, you'll see how many I'm talking about. But when we desegregated that school, it wasn't just us, but we were bused from that school. It, took, it was about a 40-minute drive every morning. When we desegregated that school and started there, we changed the whole culture. Um, I met some really good friends that I'm still friends with from there, but I attended uh, Brownsville Road Elementary all the way to the sixth grade. Wow. What high school did you go to? So, that's the second part of the story. So, after Brownsville Road, um, you know, I was always a reader. I was that talented kid. I can remember um, in that first grade class in the Chicago Park, I was so smart. My kindergarten teacher had me come back and teach the class because I was so bored in first grade. I knew everything, so what can you teach me? <laughs> <laughs> so she had, and, and true to little JoJo's spirit, you know, I wanted to always be the boss in the lead. So she would bring me back, but... I, you know, excelled at Brownsville Road. I was in Clue, um, but I will tell you, after Brownsville, we were basically sent back to our neighborhood, and we weren't allowed to immediately, like, enroll. They didn't send us to Raleigh, Egypt, or Craigmont, which would have been one of the schools that the other kids went to that lived in the neighborhood. We were sent back to New Chicago, so I went to Manansi. So I started high school, I started high school at Manassas, but mm. this is the key here, and, and, and let me tell you, your listeners can check my facts, because I am proud to say that my entire family made up the boys and girls basketball team. Okay. They were superstars, okay, and if people don't know, I'm five, eight and a half, <laughs> I'm not the tall person <laughs> in my family. <laughs> I am not. <laughs> And um, and I have to shout out my cousin Tracy Barrett, who was a star, and Carlos Whitten, who was a star um, on those teams. So, and I want my other cousins to get mad at me, but those are the two that I know were in the newspaper. Mm. Um, but after Manassas, 
And remember, I told you that my birth mother married when I was 11 years old. Okay, so that's when she so, came in and, and picked you up from your godparents, right? Yes. At yes, 11 years yes. old. Okay. And, uh-huh. And so, you know, she worked at Cleo Rav. She's married. Uh, I can't remember where her husband worked. And by that time, she had had two more kids, too. So I had two younger brothers. Oh, okay. But I will tell you, uh, we lived in North Memphis. Uh, by then, we had moved over on the other side to Klondike. And we lived in North Memphis for another two or three years while I was still going to Manassas. Okay. And so when she, um, hold on, let me start. Okay. When she um, was able to buy a house in Whitehaven, we ended up moving to Whitehaven. So I spent, you remember high school back then, Ina, was uh, ninth through 12th grade. Right. And so when we moved to Whitehaven, I initially ended up uh, going to Jeter. Mm. And I went to Jeter for one year, and I, you told me that um, I have to keep it real on this call. Yes. You, everything that you heard about North Memphis, and everything you think you know about North Memphis definitely became true when I went to Jeter Junior High. What? Why you say that, Joanne? Because I was different, to say the least. Mm. Remember, my upbringing was in North Memphis, but my education was basically in a predominantly white environment. Mm. So my diction, my articulation... My outlook on life was very, very different from other people who had not had that kind of exposure and experience. Did, how did they and accept so, you when you, you know? Oh, girl, I was called, let me tell you, I was called everything from you think you're white, mm. why do you talk like that, What? where are you from? And when I would say I was from New Chicago or North Memphis, oh, you're lying. You're lying, and they didn't say it that way, and they didn't say it that night. <laughs> but because my heart don't pump no Kool-Aid, let's just say I made sure that they didn't uh, say that again. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a sign now, thank God. Thank yes. God for deliverance and growth. <laughs> but needless to say, <laughs> Jeter, Jeter was not the best and I can say that now. Um, I can say that looking back on it, and I know why. And I understand that it was only because I was misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of black women, we tend to be misunderstood in so many ways because we're not allowed to be our authentic selves. Right. People always want to impress upon us what they think we should be doing and saying. And by people, let me be clear, I mean all people. Mm-hmm. I mean our people, people who are not our people, and people who want to be our people. Everybody wants to tell the black woman what to do and what to be, but um, we know who we are. And so the person that I presented at Jeter was somebody who had to defend themselves on a regular basis. Uh, it was a new neighborhood. I was away from my cousins. I mentioned about my nances, um, and I told you my cousins made up the basketball team. Well, in a one year before I left there, I counted, and I had 50 cousins 
I know you were very involved. Um, I know that you had faced a lot of adversity up until that point of graduation. What was Joanne's mindset on doing upon graduation? Yes, yes. So there, there's a newspaper article. Again, I have receipts for everything, but there's a newspaper article, a commercial appeal. Uh, my graduation year. Um, interviewed me. I was in the top 10 of my class. I was actually on schedule to be valedictorian, but <clears throat> I was going to attend Howard University and I was going to be an attorney. I had made up my mind in sixth grade that I wanted to be an attorney. I met this beautiful uh, woman who had come to our career day. She lived in Whitehaven and she was an attorney. And so, you know, you can't be what they can't see. And for me, that was what I saw, and that's what I wanted to be. But I was focused on that. But, you know, remember, I mentioned to you that my mother had had two children after me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she she went on with her life, and as I lived with my godparents. Well, my brother, who was five years younger than me at the time, the same kinds of challenges and adversity that I faced in our new neighborhood and our new school, he did, too. The difference was, and I want the community, I want your listeners to hear this, because if you truly, truly care about black people, you will seek to first understand us, understand our culture, understand who we are, and understand our present and the things that we face. It doesn't matter. Money does not. And Sandra Bland shows money doesn't protect you. Education doesn't protect you. Even having the proper decorum and etiquette and, you know, being all nice, none of those things protect you. Obviously, I've shown that, especially in my lifetime, I've seen all these deaths. We can name all the people who have tried to be right, who have improved their lives, but they, they're not protected. Well, when my brother, as a young black man, being at that time and, you know, moving 
and I mean, I said Jeter, so I could say the neighborhood. It was Whitehaven. Whitehaven and North Memphis are two different areas. Mm-hmm. But we moved to Whitehaven, and we were like aliens because of the way that we talked, because we went to school in Bartlett, and because we were from North Memphis. So what do we know about Whitehaven? But for him, it was even harder. Mm. And so what he experienced was, you know, I, I mentioned about Jeter and not being a bad kid, and I might have had a little hair pulling here and there. My brother had violence occur to him. Mm. And so my senior year, he was jumped by five boys. Mm. And he was had to go to the hospital. And so being a young person, Ina, I was, I was in a crossroads. I was, I had this great opportunity for a scholarship to go to D.C. Uh, like I said, I was in the top ten of my class. I had excelled in so many areas. Uh, shout out to our floor, George Mitchell, who is a member of the EO chapter now. She was my principal at the time. And she guided me and, and helped to mold me into the more refined young woman. But even at that crossroads, like a lot of black people, our families haven't caught up with us. And so I had to make a choice, Nina. Either I stay here, help my mother with my brothers to make sure that they didn't get caught up in the system or worse yet, you know, be killed. Or I move on and leave this life behind. And honestly, the article that they wrote in the commercial pill, there was no choice, Nina, for me. I love my family. Remember I said North Memphis, New Chicago is a neighborhood that stays first and foremost on family. There was no way I was going to leave my brother. So I stayed here. Mm. I stayed here. I um, started at the University of Memphis. I received a leadership scholarship there. I was still on the path to becoming an attorney uh, was my goal. But those challenges... Um, those challenges are weight, and it's hard. And when you don't have um, the support or the, uh, the resources to relieve yourself of those challenges, the only thing you can do is lay down and give in, or you can keep fighting. And I've always been a fighter, and, and one that you know have been described as having tenacity. So. Giving in, giving up was never an option for me, and I, and I kept going. Wow, so you stayed in Memphis and attended the University of Memphis. Were you there for a short while? Because I know I met you at Lamorne on College, honey. <laughs> yes, you did. Yes, you did. So I was actually at the University of Memphis for two and a half years. And so let me tell you this story. Now, with all of this diversity, okay, I mean, I still maintain all my prettiness, of course. Mm-hmm. And that might have been a problem, too, but we won't even touch that. That's that's something we won't even worry about. That's another conversation. <laughs> and so <laughs> I met this guy who is uh, happens to be 27 years later, aging myself, uh, my husband. Mm. But I met him. I met him while I was at middle college now. Middle college, for those that don't know, uh, they're currently located uh, near the campus of Christian Brothers University. 
And it has become less of an alternative school and more of the premier education um, that is that it is and that it was at the time. People just saw it differently because it was on the campus of Shelby State mm-hmm. Community College. So when I started at Middle College, I was taking business law classes, and I was the only student uh, to make an A. And by only student, it wasn't just a high school class. It was a college class. And so I was the only student, and I can, again, got receipts for this, that made an A in that class. I was taking classes with college students. They were community college students, but they were college students. Mm -hmm. And so... My senior year, I'm walking down the hallway. I um, I had, again, you know, great experiences there. I had been offered an internship initially in my 10th grade year with the University of Tennessee, um, which was then, I guess, the University of Tennessee Medical School. And they were, um, they offered me a scholarship. I did experiment, uh, internships. I did experiments on lab rats for uh, sleep dep- deprivation and insomnia. And I was doing that at 15 years old, you know. Mm-hmm. I was in the lab with scientists taking notes for them on their experiment. And, you know, of course, I had to clean the rat cage and the rat cages, but it was exciting. Um, and I was being paid. So I had a white lab coat that I went to work every day. So when I walked out the door to go to my after-school job. I was walking out the door with a white lab coat, and, you know, other friends and people were kind of going to different kinds of jobs. So it was always a little bit of me just kind of standing out and being different from my peers. But I'm walking down the hallway, and this guy says, hey, would you like to try out for cheerleading? I look over at him. Remember, I said I had a, I met a very small a high school. So I'm thinking, what cheerleading are you talking about? Because, of course, I was a cheerleader. And not only was I a cheerleader, but my English teacher was the cheer sponsor. That was my favorite person, and I was one of hers. So I knew that this guy couldn't possibly be uh, recruiting cheerleaders. But I looked at him. I knew something was up, but let me tell you, honey, when I say fine, fine, mm. was only described by looking at Cuban Nancy. Mm. He was fine. I was like, okay, he's cute. Let me go over here and see what this little stupid boy Look, I'll be about. his cheerleader. I'll be his cheerleader. <laughs> I know. I was just like, okay, let me go over here and see what this little stupid boy talks about. You know, because he's cute and all, but let me see what he's talking about. So I go over there, he has this little list, and he's like, yeah, I'm setting up cheerleaders. I'm like, oh, okay. I said, do you know Miss Shannon? Uh, yeah, yeah, I know Miss Shannon. I knew he was lying then, but he had the prettiest doll eyes, Ina, and pretty much I was lost after that. And so I'm, I'm, I'm spilling all the tea here, but we talked on the phone that night. He called me. We talked on the phone until 6 o'clock in the morning. When I woke up, this was when you had a house phone that was in the wall. Mm-hmm. The receiver was laying on my chest. I picked the phone up. I was like, hello? And he was still there. Mm. That was it. And I was breathing was on it. the phone, breathing on the phone, falling asleep. I remember them days. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So um, the thing is, is and you, you asked me this question, just kind of leading into 
how I ended up from the University of Memphis to Lemoyne. So at that point, Cuba and I started dating, um, you know, making my choice to stay here for my brother, particularly what happened to him and my, my other brother who was younger, making sure that he was okay. Um, we were, I was dating Cuba when I attended the University of Memphis, and we became pregnant with my son, who's now 22. Mm-hmm. So the university, I was, you know, trying to juggle a job, a part-time job, and going to school. And so the university didn't have an evening business uh, program. I was in the business program at that time. And so I decided, because Lamont Orange had an evening business program, that I would transfer. Well, okay. I transferred, and I think you might remember that year, I transferred in mm-hmm. the fall of 1999. Mm-hmm. And in the spring of 2000, girl, why the University of Memphis started an evening program? They didn't wow. even give me the heads up. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But but that was a good transition for you attending Lamont Oren, though. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad we had, you know, I was able to tell you about my history, my background, because it will give light to the experience that I had at Lemoyne. So, you know, that transfer was not necessarily an easy one for me either, because I was focused, you know, I kind of felt like maybe I let some folks down and you know, of course, by then, QB and I actually married in 1999. We had TJ, but we had married, and so people were kind of like, okay, she's, you know, putting more barriers in her way. Not knowing and understanding that my husband has been my rock, you know, he has been my motivator, and he will always say, and that's why we tell the cheerleader story, because he's my cheerleader. Mm. He's my biggest cheerleader and my biggest fan. And so when we moved, when I moved on from the University of Memphis after being married to Lemoyne, it was a whole new environment for me again. Mm -hmm. Remember, and I told you, my education and my academics were mostly in that environment uh, in Violet as a child. I had that brief experience at Menanzas, which when you count that along with Jeter, because with my family, I was surrounded by them and the Nancy, so I was allowed to be my authentic self. And this is going to lead me into what I'm, I want to really talk about later, is how, again, being our authentic selves is the only place that we can find happiness. And yeah. so I had to be somebody else when I was at Jeter. And then, of course, when I went to middle college, I was, again, able to be myself and express myself in my true authentic way. Well, at the University of Memphis, it was kind of the same because nobody, I mean, so many people, so many different kinds of folks, it just, that attention wasn't on me. I didn't have to stand out in that way. Mm-hmm. But in Lemoyne, I will tell you, it was different, but it was different in such a good way, Ina, because what I found was what I felt like I had been missing my entire life, which was my roots and my connection to the black community. Mm. Of course, I lived in a black community, and I was black. I mean, you know, I am black. I, I lived in a black community. But every day I was bused to a white community where I basically had to adapt, where I was put into a box in order to, and my mother, you know, being older, my godmother, 
who had grown up, you know, during the segregation time, she felt the need to, you know, straighten my hair and, you know, put me, like we all did back then, make sure that I conformed in a way that was acceptable. But I always got that, you're so pretty, you're a pretty little black girl. Why can't you just be pretty? You know, why do I have to be a pretty black girl? Oh, right. Or, you know, you're... You, you are so articulate for a black girl. Let me tell you something. My eyes were rolled to the top of my head, but I was taught, you know, to, to just hold that in. So at Lemoyne, I became free, you know. Mm -hmm. I remember the day, and I won't get the building right because time has just escaped me, but we were sitting, I was sitting in my African-American uh, history class. And it was a big class because, you know, the University of Memphis, it might have been like 30 folks in the African-American history class. Mm -hmm. And more and on, everybody was in the African-American class. And it was in the big, you know, theater classroom. Okay. And so I'm sitting there, and they started um, talking about African-American history, and particularly history that I had never even heard of, so I was so enthralled with what the teacher was saying, mm -hmm. I started crying, mm. like right there in the classroom, tears just started flowing, people were looking at me like, what is wrong with her, <laughs> but it was a relief, because I knew that I had finally made it home, yes. I had finally made it to a place where, and I'm about to cry here, so give me, give me a second, uh -oh. I had finally made it to a place, you know, where I knew that I could be me. Right, right. And you know what, Joanne? <laughs> I remember you. I remember you when you got to Lemoyne. I remember you because you were very smart. I remember that. I remember you were very professional. You would come to school professionally dressed baby business suits and you know we were scouting for new lines and okay who who who, who we inviting to you know russian we definitely yeah. wanted you joanne we was like yeah yeah <laughs> but you were always on top of your business you were on top of everything i remember that joanne thank you well well now you know exactly why Emma. um you know there was there was never any other uh, choice for me, let's be clear. Um, I only wanted to be an AKA, but I was, I was just being myself and just, you know, really, it was, it was just a relief to be able to be accepted for who I, I was. I, I remember you all too, and I just remember um, really admiring you all so much. Um, beautiful, um, sweet, that was the thing, I remember that part, because, you know, of all my different traumas and adversities that I had experienced, and especially, um, I won't say especially with women, but especially with my own people, mm -hmm. not accepting me, particularly, you know, I could be the pet for others, but to be accepted by my people, by black people, was a hard thing for me, and so... Yeah. Needless to say, uh, you guys were accepting, and everybody was so nice. I had so much fun yes. at Lamont. I can't, I don't remember, I mean, I think back and I tell my kids um, on college days, of course at the University of Memphis, you know, I had met some folks like Christy Nider, Sylvia Patterson, 
Um, you know, Joe, all those folks were hilarious. But being at Lemoyne on, again, I found another family. I felt like I was back, you know, with my cousins at Manansas. And so everybody was just so much fun. And, and, and you know, the other thing, too, Ina, that I think people need to hear about Lemoyne on what is, is that? that, you know, I mentioned being that student that was always identified as, you know, with a lot of potential, and I always excelled academically. But at Lemoyne on, the difference that I felt was not only was that an expectation, right? So I didn't stand out because there were so many people that were smart. I mean, you and, you know, Tanya, and I mean, I could go on with all those folks that did really well and presented themselves not only as academics, but also, you know, being able to be versatile and be involved in things. And so it was expected, but it, it was also, it was also supported. It was also, um, molded into each of us people don't understand that a historically black college the grades that you are going to earn you are going to earn them Mm -hmm. you are going to get the material because one of the things that i knew is that when we turned around and we came out of Illinois, we represent our college and we still to this day represent our college so a lot of people don't know that I went to Lemoyne on, and I have to tell them right now, I, I went to Lemoyne on. I go, really? Yes, I did. And that's not, you know, I don't think that's what I'm here to put down. It's just what they expect. But it was never, we because of we knew what the world expected from us, I feel like our professors and each other, we pushed each other to excellence because we knew what was needed and what we need to put out in the world. Definitely. You know what, this kind of reminds me of a conversation that I had with a former verbally effective guest and former alum, well, he's an alumni of LeMoyne, Mikhail Lowry, and we talked about, Uh you know, when people find out that you attended LeMoyne on college, they seem to be so shocked because of, you know, you're thriving in your business, you're thriving in your community as if because you attended LeMoyne, you know, how can you be this way? And, you know, we just talked about how we have to, you know, be proud of attending a historically black college because it has molded us and taught us so much and has shaped us into the people that we are today. So I'm always representing LeMoyne on college wherever I go. Yes, ma'am, definitely. You will always see me representing too. And like I said, whether it's, you know, young kids who are looking for uh, college opportunities, professionals that I interact with on a daily basis, or just people around the nation with the work that I do, um, how they view and how they look at uh, historically black colleges in particular, I let people know that, you know, my my roots are right there in Lemoyne on, and I'm so proud uh, to be a graduate and so proud, you know, the networking, too. The Definitely. networking, you know, like us, I mean, we've been connected for years in so many different ways. And besides you being my core, uh, just professionally being able to uh, engage with you and so many others, um, I'm just really proud of that. Yes, ma'am. Now, for time's sake, let's fast forward a bit, Joanne. Let's, okay. let's fast forward a bit. Um, let's get into your professional endeavors. Um 
where you are today. I, I know that you've had quite a few opportunities once you graduated from college, but let's dive right in into the role that you are in today. You are, you know, working for the city of Memphis as the director of business diversity and compliance. And I will say that when you receive this role, I was so happy for you. I was so proud of you, but I knew that it was going to be very challenging because of the work that you do in this role because you know being in a city um, that is majority african-american this is a very important role um, you are providing you know statistics on you know black businesses um, that you know need to be in the pool of contracts for the city so First, talk about what your role entails and some of the challenges and triumphs that you've had as the director of business diversity and compliance. Yeah, yeah, you you, you hit it right on the head. Um, I knew that it would be challenging. Uh, Mayor Strickland, shout, shout out to Mayor Strickland. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, we knew it would be challenging. Um, but as you mentioned about my professional background, you know, I've done everything from, I, I did not, by the way, I did not graduate law school. I am not an attorney. Um, I did attend law school, but I did not finish. But between that experience and knowledge and financial services uh, and all, I brought all of that to the table um, to do this work because, as you said, the challenge of being in the African American, majority African American community we were looking at changing the um, changing the percentage of city contracting that minority and women businesses received from the city prior to the um, Mayor Strickland taking office. That number was at about twelve percent. Wow! And so, when I say twelve percent, now remember the city itself is sixty-three percent African American. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, I want everybody to hear me when I say this, because this is, you know, the lawyer in me uh, that's not uh, licensed, by the way, make that clear, but, you know, just the legal mind in me. Minority, the minority definition is the federal definition. It's not the Memphis definition. It's the federal definition. <laughs> <laughs> Give them their the definition, Memphis Joanne. Give them the definition, just, please. Yes, yes. Please hear me when I say this, y'all. The federal definition of minority includes, of course, African American, Asian, Hispanic, and Indian, Native American. Mm-hmm. Those are the groups that are included in minority on the federal definition. And the definition says that if any one group is less than 51% of the population, Nationwide, they are a minority. Mm. Okay, so I know that Memphis is sixty-three percent or more African American, and people will tell me I'm not a minority. Yes, we are federally. We are a minority. And even you told me that I'm Joanne on this call, so I'm just gonna be clear. Y'all hear me when I say we are the minority, yes. and it is to our advantage, at least in this program that I run. For us to be that. That is why we're able to do what we are doing. So we are a minority, 
but we are the majority in our city. Right. Now, the, the woman certification that we have, that is women, white women are not considered minorities. But they do have a disparity that has been identified by data. By data, okay? So it's not something somebody made up before. It's data-based. And that's what our entire program is based on data. So going into, you know, what we do, um, the office, I have um, the unit. I have three units. I have a certification unit. I have a compliance unit. And I have a business services unit. The business services unit is the component that is made up of the Entrepreneurs Network Center. There, we're not just focused on contracting, but we're focused on helping businesses build their operations. Uh, I'll talk about our microloan program and what we have available to assist businesses, particularly in this crisis. But that's the unit that helps businesses. The compliance unit is the unit as it's described. It's the one that makes sure that we're meeting the goals that we set for ourselves. So I mentioned, and you asked me to talk about triumphs and challenges, I mentioned that 12%. Well, you know, in less than three years, I would say maybe three and a half, uh, the mayor and I, along with the rest of city government, was able to almost double that number. We, we rose that number of city contracting from that 12% to over 23%. Wow. Yep, yep. And it's real. I The line items are there. The expenditures happen. They happen with companies that we have verified to be minority-owned through the certification unit, and it happened. But, you know, the challenges happen, too. No one person can do everything. And at the time, we inherited a system when the mayor took office in 2016 that was somewhat flawed, but it was also not meant for the volume that we built after he took office. So we were using a spreadsheet to keep up with those expenditures. You heard me write an Excel spreadsheet. Yes, I know all about Excel, honey. I know all about it. Exactly. So, you know, remember we learned at Lemoyne on about how to write in functions and formulas or whatever in the spreadsheet and how to auto-sum and calculate. Mm-hmm. But that was that's what I was doing. But at the same time, because I have an MBA and I was the one with the background, the team that I had, I had one other person helping me with the spreadsheet. I was the one that was responsible for it. So along with the appearances and the meetings and all those things like that, I'm trying to keep up with these numbers. Well, three years later, trying to keep up with these numbers, I made a mistake. Hmm. What happened? You heard me say a mistake. A mistake. What happened, Joanne? You would have thought that I had thrown a baby in traffic. No, no, no. That's how bad it came down, right? It came, you know, and, and, and I will say just from the community, I want to say that, you know, the mayor has always shown support. He has always stood in the place of 
doing what is right when it comes to this program, providing the resources, the support I need, uh, helping to execute on the strategies that we develop. But we both stood there, um, and I will say, you know, true to my background and true to his character, we owned that mistake. But again, you know, it was just a mistake. It was a number. On the surface of the spreadsheet, you could see that one number was larger than the total sum at the bottom. So why would we put out something fraudulent that was so evidently flawed? Right. It was a mistake. Mm. Yeah. So after that mistake happened, um, I, I know you came out and, and acknowledged your mistake and you know explained everything. And I, I know there was some bad press for a moment, but you prevailed. Yes, God is good. God I prevail. is good. I prevailed, and, and I thank Memphis. I thank Memphis for believing in us uh, in the majority. And I thank the companies, the business owners especially, who not only, I mean, you know, my phone blew up, my text messages, you know, I don't shy away from giving my personal number uh, for people to contact me, but it was so much support that was shown uh, both to the mayor and I uh, because those that had reaped the benefit of the program and the strategies prior to who had seen their businesses grow, they knew it was real. So, yeah. That's awesome. But you know what? I, I, you know, have a background as well in diversity procurement. I was once a purchasing manager for a, a huge company <clears throat> here in Memphis, and I was charged with you know, making sure that we increase our business with minority companies. And one of the challenges that I did see back then in reporting the numbers, we're trying to get the minority companies on board with being compliant because that first step, you talked about compliant, you have to be compliant. That's the first step. And it seemed like, I don't know if some of the business businesses were eager to go through that process and become compliant because that's the first step, you know, to, to be a part of uh-huh. doing business with the city. But that was one of the challenges that I did notice. Um, and for whatever reasons, you know, a, a minority company did not want to go through that compliance stage. But that was one of the main things that I saw <laughs> when trying to move minority businesses forward with being compliant. Do you still see that um, in your role? Is that a big challenge for for you in getting a larger number of minority business to participate? Well, I'll say this. I, my answer is yes, but there's a reason why. And I think explaining that reason why is really important. But yes, my answer is yes. Um, when the mayor took office, we had 138 businesses on our certified list. I'm very proud to say that as of today, and honestly since 2018, or yeah, 2018, we've had over 600 businesses on our list. Wow. So we stopped counting when we quadrupled. <laughs> That's a huge jump. Yep, yep. Yeah, but the reason why, Ina, is because 
we built around a support system, an informational system, uh, information system that allowed business owners to understand why it was important for them to be compliant. Not only did we build that system of information so that they would understand how important it is to have the certification, what resources and uh, opportunities, bid opportunities, contracts that you could access by having this certification. But we helped them. So it wasn't just go get a certification from a third party agency, you know, pay two, three, a hundred thousand, you know, a thousand dollars or whatever, and then just bring us a certificate. No, we help with the application. So shout out to our city council. My first year in this office, uh, they, along with the mayor, allowed us to build an in-house certification system. I was able to hire people who would help businesses get that certification that they need for free from the city. So if you allow me a moment, Ina, because this is really important for your business owners and that are listening especially, if you are not certified with the city, call us at 901-636-9300 and talk to a certification analyst. I know the times that we're in, but we're working virtually. We have not missed a beat. So you can call us. We'll take you through the online certification process and get you in the system and get you access to these opportunities. But everything I've said, Anna, has led up to this. Everybody has a story. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a history, and they have challenges that you would never know. So as we look at our business owners who are challenged to be compliant, there's the reason. The systemic racism, discrimination, lack of resources, and I'll just, you know, take an example. You've got a business owner who may do general contracting, but you're asking him to fill out some documents, give you tax returns, you know, provide all of this information about his business, but he's still over here trying to do business and do contracts. So he's the only person in his business that's working. He doesn't have any employees. Did you know, Anna, that Shelby County has 49,000 black-owned businesses by the last census? No, I didn't know that. mm -hmm, But did you know that only 787 of them have more than five employees? Hmm. No, I did not know that, but I can believe that lack of resources. I understand that. I understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a business owner, you get it. And so when you have to close up your door to go down to City Hall and fill out some paperwork and things like that, that can be burdensome. So those are challenges that sometimes our business owners have with not being able to be compliant. They don't have the bonding capacity that large companies have or the number of employees or the ability to create pretty proposals that they submit. So we understand all that, and that's why, you know, our uh, office, Office of Business Diversity and Compliance, is here to help businesses with all of those things. And that's a good thing because I, I think overall the perception is, wow, Memphis is 63% African American, but they only have this percentage um, of doing business uh, for minorities with the city of Memphis. So, but you have to dig into the details of that. You know, everybody has assumptions and a big idea of what should be, but you have to definitely dig into those details. So, I applaud you, Joanne, for doing the work 
of helping our minority businesses, you know, get a piece of that pie. I really applaud you, Joanne. Well, thank you, Ina. And I, I will tell you, it's not about me, but it is for us. Uh, I've said to the mayor and I've said to the public that one of the greatest honors of my life, and I've had, you know, many from, of course, becoming uh, a member of our sorority and graduating from Illinois, marrying my husband and my children, um, being born. This is one of those honors to be able to serve my community and it's really funny because when the mayor offered me this position I did not know him uh, I knew of him obviously because he was a council person but I did not know him before I uh, took this job and when he offered me this appointment my only question was you know are, are you serious and he laughed and he said of course I am he said of course I am and I knew we were all, we were in this together. And I just have to say, you know, again, for the record, he has been supportive. He means business about diversity and inclusion. And that has not let up even to this day. Um, so, you know, some of the things that we've been able to do even during this crisis has been with his support and focus and things that he's, uh, you know, created and helped us do to support businesses. Yes. Now, as of today, what, what, like, as of today, right now, what percentage of minority business is the city of Memphis doing as of today? So, as of today, for the last uh, calculations, which we do our calculations on a biannual basis. So, I mentioned about that mistake. I don't have to do that spreadsheet alone anymore. We have the Office of Performance Management uh, as well as our CFO who assists me with that task. And I think it was just one of those things. If I had asked, um, I believe we could have gotten, you know, help earlier and, and improved in an improved system. But here we are. So with this improved system, the last calculations that we have are actually for um, 2019. So as of June 30th, 2019, we were at 21%. Awesome. Now, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Now, and I and I need to add, too, Ema, if you um, indulge me, the county numbers, a lot of people have heard about this 1% of receipts. That 1% of receipts that black businesses, minority businesses got for Shelby County, that data was from the census. And that's why overall economy out billions of dollars in the county so that wasn't that's not city contracting that's the overall economy which is very poor you know that's a very poor number but it's not the city's number the city's number is the 21 percent okay that one percent is the whole county's number so if you put up a mirror you're going to see everybody in that mirror with that one percent with the 21% for the school you just see up. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, what is the goal for 2020? So the goal for 2020 has always been 24%. Some of the some of the largest cities in our nation are doing about 30. Okay. So, so we're pacing ourselves, and um, 24 for this year was our goal. Now, you heard me say was because I have to live in our reality. Um, 
man, in a COVID-19, here yeah, we are. Here we are. How has it affected your role and, and how minority business are functioning right now? I know it took a big hit. Yeah, yeah. I would I would say that, you know, we're, we're still looking at it, but business has gone on. Projects that the city is conducting have continued. We continue to... Um, we continue to contract and sub have subcontracting with minority and women businesses. And I'll tell you a really funny story. So in 2018, uh, as we were looking at the numbers rising for city contracting and the number of businesses that we had on our certified list, the mayor said, okay, every contract that I sign, because you know he's the sole contractor for city of Memphis, and that's our system. He said, every contract that I signed, I wanted to have went through Joanne's office, office of business birthday compliance. And if it doesn't have that stamp or that sign on it, then I'm sending it back. If it doesn't have minority participation without that stamp or sign, I'm sending it back. But let me just tell you how, um, I, I'm going to just say how awesome Jim Strickland is on this. If it doesn't have minority participation and there's not a clear explanation as to why, He's sending it back. Mm. And would you believe, Ina, during all this crisis and everything that he's got on his shoulders with the city, that he's still sending contracts back that don't have minority participation or women's home participation? Mm. Wow. Even in the midst of a crisis. Even in the midst of a crisis, we're still focused on the priority. So when you ask me the number of how we're doing, I don't have that measurement. But I will tell you that the process has not stopped. The momentum has not stopped in that regard. Now, our office, my entire team, for the most part, is working virtually. You can call the office. Offices, uh, phones are forwarded, so you will get an answer. Um, right now, what we did was we took funding that we had on hand, our micro loan program, and we, uh, the mayor, created two new micro loan uh, programs in order to address the needs of our community in the emergency in this crisis. So one of them is called the Economic Hardship Emergency Loan Fund, and it's a fund that's meant to just provide some immediate emergency funds for our micro businesses is $2,000 to $5,000. Now, I know people might say that's not a lot of money, but, you know, when you are a micro business, meaning that, remember, I said it's 49,000 African-American-owned or black-owned businesses in the county. Only 787 of them have more than five employees. Mm. So that's two to five thousand can make payroll. Yes, that's two to five thousand can pay a lease or mortgage right. or a bill. So yeah. don't discount it just because two to five thousand ain't a lot of money. To you that's right. money to some business. That can make a big difference. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And the other program is uh, we're calling the Small Business Resiliency Fund. And I'm partnered uh, with Paul Young of the Housing and Community Development Division. He's the director there. Uh, he has what's called Community Development Block Grant Funds. We've had those funds, and, you know, they were being used for other purposes. 
But together, the mayor created this fund, uh, the Small Business Resiliency Loan Fund, using uh, 500000 of those uh, TDBG, is what they're called, Community Development Block Grant. And so the Small Business Resiliency Fund, we're working on getting that on the street. It may be another two weeks, but the uh, businesses can get up to 35000 mm. as a loan in that fund. Okay. Now... I will say this, any loan that you get, no matter what or who you get it from, has criteria that must be met. So some of the criteria for this is obviously for the emergency loan fund, you have to have been in business for at least a year. For the resiliency fund, which is based on the name resiliency, you have to have been in business for at least three years. The emergency fund, you have to be a resident of Memphis, and your business has to be in Memphis. Now, city limits. And for the resiliency fund, your business has to be in Memphis. Gotcha. And, and both of them, Ina, and this is just kind of preliminary. It may change. But we did ask that you be already certified with the city of Memphis, be a part of that 600 list, or that you become certified. And again, that's only to help ensure that you receive the technical assistance and support. None of these criteria are meant to block anybody out. And when you think about it, Ina, when you want your tax dollars to help city of Memphis businesses. Right, right. Wow. I am so happy about, you know, these loans that are open to um, the minority businesses right now. Have you noticed a lot of people, you know, submitting for these loans as of today? So we've had over 90 inquiries and, um, you know, we've had uh, some applications to come in too. Um, we're, we're, we're more than happy to take on more uh, in order to get information about the loan programs. Um, and, and honestly, the loan programs and just any support or services that are in the city around COVID-19 at all, uh, your listeners should go to COVID-19, so COVID-19.memphistn.gov. And for the small businesses, just go to the, the tab that says Small Businesses Resources, and there you'll be able to find information not only about our office, but our partners with the Chamber and other organizations who are assisting small businesses. That is awesome, Joanne. I just want to thank you so much for sharing your journey today on a verbally effective podcast. I'm sure a lot of people, you know, they see you on TV, they see you out in the community, they know what your position is as far as diversity, procurement, and compliance with the city of Memphis, but they probably didn't know a lot of the details you dropped on them today on the podcast. I know they didn't know a lot of this. Little no, JoJo, no, little JoJo. <laughs> yeah, I know, little JoJo. As, as my mother would say, you you know, you walk out the door with your best on, with your Sunday suit on. So 
everybody sees me in my Sunday suit um, on a usual basis, and I think that's the way that we all are, but I think that I want your listeners to know more than anything is it's not because I'm from Memphis that I love Memphis, but it's because I am Memphis. I am a Memphian. I want the young people out there to know that no matter where you come from, no matter what neighborhood, what, you know, uh, obstacles you are born with or are put in your life, you can do anything that you can put your mind to. If somebody like me who came from where I came from and basically being, you know, an orphan child in a way because I didn't have that structure, but I found, my mother found that structure for me. And then all the obstacles, I was supposed to be a statistic. You know, my husband and I married. We were supposed to be a statistic. Everybody just thought we were too young. But look at us now. 27 years later, three mm. beautiful, successful children. My girls graduate next year. They're not class of 2020, but 2021. Shout out to all the, class, all the 2020 babies. We mm. love y'all. And life is going to be just fine. Y'all don't give up. This is just meant to build you and to help make you stronger. But all those things I went through made me stronger, Ina. And it is who I am. And I just want your listeners to know my heart and know that my intentions are always the best for Memphis. And, you know, I I have to shout out my boss. And I know, you know, I know what's said, but let me tell you, he he loves Memphis. I love Memphis. And I'm I'm really, really uh, glad to be here with you to be able to tell the other side of my story. Absolutely. Now, Joanne, give everybody your social media handles and how they can keep up with you and the good works that you're doing. All right. So you can uh, follow me on Twitter at Joanne Massey underscore 901. Um, You can also uh, find me, find my office on Twitter at um, BDC uh, M-E-M. And you can just search the Office of Business Diversity and Compliance to find us on Twitter uh, as well as Facebook. Awesome. And you can always look me up on LinkedIn. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much, Sora Joanne, for participating today in the Verbally Effective Podcast. And I also want to thank you for including me in several of your events for um, the city of Memphis. I truly appreciate you and just keep up the great work, Soror. All right. Thank you, Soror. Take care, everybody.